I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for October 3rd, 2019, the We're Not Fooling Around Here edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C., locus center of impeachment America. Oh, that's probably some CNN studio downtown. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes joins me from New York City. Hello, John. Hiya. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and also Yale University Law School. School of Law, Law School, joins me from, probably from New Haven. Are you in New Haven, Emily, or somewhere else? No, I'm actually in New York. I feel like I've joined a different show. Like, I missed a week and you turned into, like, a circus barker. Oh, I don't know. I'm actually, I'm in, I'm, I'm just trying to artificially pep myself up. I'm having a slow start to the morning. That's exactly what it sounds like. Okay. Step done. right up, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I was, at, I was at Coney Island yesterday. So I was at Coney Island for the Atlas Obscura uh, off-site, and so I'm feeling very Carnival Barker. Uh, see the tallest man. This man will swallow a four-foot sword. On today's GabFest, we have so much Ukraine, so much impeachment. First, we will talk about what is going on in the investigation and how President Trump and his allies are counterpunching. John, did you just say God? Did you just like... Well, I just, I like, just because there's so much that's happened just between the time you started your sentence and... (laughs) <laughs> right now, I mean, so so the prospect of trying to update it and and is is just daunting. That's great. That's that is the that is actually the story of the Trump presidency. Is there's so much that happened between the time Plot started his sentence and now. Then second impeachment Trumpy topic. We were going to talk about a brilliant piece by Pete Weiner about why conservatives cannot break from Trump who has corrupted and debased them. And his explanation is different than perhaps what you've heard before. Then we will talk about the Harvard affirmative action case involving admissions for Asian American students and how that just took a new turn. Plus we'll have cocktail chatter and an exciting announcement. GabFest listeners, especially West Coast GabFest listeners, our annual conundrum show will be live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California. We're coming to the East Bay December 18th. For tickets and information, go to slate.com slash live. That is our favorite live show of the year. We will discuss amazing conundrums that you will give to us, hopefully living up to such classics as Would You Rather Be a Fish or Tree? Please join us. <laughs> Fox Theater, Oakland, December 18th for the annual conundrum show, slate.com slash live. Tickets on sale Friday morning. Holy moly, the impeachment Ukraine scandal is metastasizing quickly and grimly. There is so much unusual and hard to follow stuff happening. There's an incredible Bill Barr piece. Bill Barr is making a Where's Waldo around the world journey to gather dirt or try to clear the president in the Mueller investigation. There's an emerging showdown between the administration and Congress over whether the administration will in fact comply with any requests for evidence or testimony. The president is hurling grotesque insults at Democratic members of Congress and genuinely seems unhinged, although that's kind of his normal state of being, so maybe it's not different. Anyway, John, what are the most important things that happened in this scandal and in the the uh, investigation this week or in the last two and a half minutes? <laughs> well, I think the most important thing really is that we is that a, that there is a summary approaching upon a transcript of the president of the United States pressure, pressuring a foreign leader to investigate a political opponent both the one in 2016 uh, kind of tangentially and then specifically Joe Biden so that's the main thing and as um, as Haley Barber used to say uh, sometimes the most important thing is to keep the main thing the main thing um, and the reason that's the main thing is not only because um, Presidents are not supposed to do that uh, because their most important job is keeping America safe. And when they dis- 
when they lose focus on that in order to, um, uh, that's not good. It's also, they're not supposed to use the power of their office to um, hurt political opponents. But um, the other thing, the other reason it's important is that that storyline, that um, that narrow storyline and the fact that it's launched an impeachment inquiry in the House has changed um has changed the political dynamic for the moment. The the country is now 45% of the country on Thursday in a new poll that came out um, favors impeachment. Um, so there's a plurality of the country that favors it. And and the public opinion on this has done something different than what we've seen before. If you, if you look at the question that's been asked on impeachment for more than a year, the line of people who say that there is not, uh, that they don't favor impeachment, that there isn't a case for impeachment... Um, hovers along at the top and below it, the, the support for impeachment uh, goes below. Um, this is based on, on polling uh, uh, from 538, all the questions that ask some version of yes or no question about impeachment. They follow along basically in parallel lines. And occasionally they kiss against each other, but mostly the don't support is above the support. In the last couple of weeks or maybe even a little bit less, those lines have crossed. Um, so that's something new uh, uh, for the last since, you know, 2018, middle of 2018. There are a, a thousand different rivulets coming from the main story, which we can discuss. I guess the only other final point I would make is um, there has still not been really what they call, and I think, Emily, you'll tell me if I'm right, I think this is a Stephen Skronik expression from Yale, but there have been no charismatic dissenters yet. In other words, there's nobody from the Republican Party who is not already in the never-Trumper camp who has said impeachment should go forward of sufficient stature to um, fulfill that bend in the narrative, which, which one usually would expect. We'll talk a bit more about that in our second topic. Emily, actually, I want to, uh, you, you didn't get a chance to talk about this last week um and there's so many as john said rivulets let's say they're 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 perhaps uh cacophonous mountain streams more than they're rivulets one of the ones that's most interesting is this spectacle of bill barr the attorney general who doesn't seem to be doing his actual job as attorney general he seems to be spending much of his time trekking around the world on missions for the president notably to italy and what are the mission that he is pursuing and is it appropriate for the attorney general to be pursuing the personal political ends of the president? Is that how the attorney general should be spending his time? Right. Well, the buttoned up version of what Barr is doing is that he is properly meeting with foreign leaders to further an investigation of the Mueller investigation's origins. He, if you give him the benefit of the doubt, has some credible reason to think that there was a problem with what his own intelligence officers at the FBI were doing, and he wants to get to the bottom of it, and he's enlisting their aid. The issue, of course, with this, well, there's <laughs> there are a few issues. So one is just the notion of elevating what looks to be a, a grudge-driven directive from Trump to the top order of an attorney general's business mm -hmm. that it means that he's personally taking trips. And I think second is this question of whether there is any factual basis for thinking that the origin of the Mueller investigation was troubling in a way that merits its own investigating. If you think that, like, yeah, maybe there's something to it, then okay, maybe you can direct the Justice Department's resources toward that end. But if you think this is made up, and that it's really another dirt digging expedition. It seems truly alarming to think that the Justice Department is now enlisted in this effort. And I can't decide myself like which way to think about this. It is different from Giuliani because Giuliani is a freelancer working for Trump's personal attorney. And this is the official government's business. But does it make it worse or better? <laughs> that is such a great question, Emily. On the one hand, you think, well, Giuliani, it, Giuliani is not... Uh, not elected, not appointed, serves no government office, is working for the private ends of the president, and we've outsourced parts of our foreign policy to him. That is an absolute, you know, red flag in every possible respect. That is the president, you, you know, using his personal employees to advance his personal agenda, but taking advantage of the resources of government. And I would commend to anyone who has a chance to listen to the daily, the daily's episode on Thursday uh, has a great rundown of what Giuliani did. And it, it ends up being a great summary of the entire whole spectacle, actually. But but yeah, the, it, it does feel somehow worse that Barr, who is an agent of the entire 
government of the American people who is ostensibly has some degree of independence from the president uh, and that is turning the full might of the Justice Department on a private political enemy of the president to serve his political personal ends that that I think it is I think that that one is worse I think I think if I had to rate it although it depends on where you where you put the finger because on the, because because Giuliani is essentially just an extension of the president's uh, misuse of his office if that's if you sign up to that agreement so Barr is misusing his office in the purpose of for the purposes of doing something that's political and not a top priority and Giuliani is doing it on behalf of the president which is basically the same category um well, can but, I can but I Barr's st- destroyed a bureaucracy while doing it he's destroyed Fair. the credibility of a right. powerful institution yeah. which has had credence that's Go true ahead. that and is for that me a- the context matters here and what I mean is that in particular relating to this particular moment of chaos and scandal it was Barr's Justice Department that said the whistleblower complaint should not be made public, should not be given to Congress. And that's based on what looks to me like a very, very shaky legal analysis over at the Office of Legal Counsel. So I'm worried about that part, too. It already looks like Barr is implicated in suppressing this complaint and this scandal. And so the notion that he's then off on the side trying to gin up lack of confidence in America's intelligence agencies, right? Like he's over there discrediting their work. Now, if you think they were up to some shenanigans, then that's a good thing. But if you have no reason to think that and they were just credibly doing their jobs, that looks kind of that shit. The and I, if I could just staple onto that, I think that's I think that's right. We may someday find out what if there's just like massive corruption and rot and and he uncovers it. If there's only like a little bit of something, then then this is extraordinary measures. You're killing a fly with a shotgun. Um, and this and, is and also, back- remember, after Jim Comey has been fired, right? Like we already yeah. know that Comey did something very irregular in publicizing the Hillary Clinton investigation, but did not do that um, before the election with regard to the FBI's inquiries into Trump. So there's already been some addressing of FBI irregularity that does not support Trump's theory of the case. And the notion that, you know, the FBI, like, look, I'm not usually someone who gives law enforcement like a huge amount of leeway, but they were acting in this urgent situation with this incoming president who they worried could be compromised in some way. So the idea that like now they could be on the hook for potential criminal violations or whatever Barr is looking into and enlisting foreign powers in that inquiry, you know, again, like what's going on well, here? Can I just add to that, which is essentially you're saying is the time and attention that the entire law, inf- well, not the entire, but that the chief law enforcement officer, is that what we get to call the attorney general? Sometimes they call the president that too. So I get confused. But anyway, the attorney general's time and attention is being uh, di- uh, arranged in this direction. Then we learned uh, on Thursday uh, that the um, inspector general of the State Department turned over documents about um, basically some stuff that Giuliani had given the State Department about um, what the inspector general, or at least a characterization of what he turned over, amounted to conspiracy theories. Inside the State Department, officials with knowledge of Ukraine said this is crazy, it's conspiracy theory. Nevertheless, the push was still on to do this investigating. Why does this matter? I think it t- attaches to what you're saying, Emily, which is the extraordinary amount of time and attention applied to this issue, then continually applied to the issue despite objections from people with expertise. What was the governing national security interest? Is this one of the top five things that should get this much time and attention in a presidency? If it's not in the top five, is it in the top 10? What if it's not in the top 20? But yet yeah. it's getting all of this time and attention and there's an opportunity cost. That means that time and attention and focus isn't being applied to anything else that's happening in the world. Turns out it's a hard job. Need time and attention to apply to things that are like super important. Yeah, and, and there's also this other example when we look at the politicization of the Justice Department where it now appears that 130 people associated with the State Department and Hillary Clinton are now facing a kind of investigation for having sent emails to Hillary Clinton that ended up on her private server. Actually, they didn't even send it to her. They sent it to somebody else who then forwarded it to her. And some of these, 
the material in these emails was retroactively classified, and so it was classified material. And so these people are having their lives turned upside down, harried, uh, in some cases getting black marks put on their record that's going to make it hard for them to get a, another job, hard for them to get approved for something later on for what is what is an utterly politicized and and completely malevolent, malicious investigation. And that's a, that's another example of misuse, misuse of resources. I want to turn actually now to a couple of other things. There's some other big, big cataracts of, of water flowing down. John, the president this week seemed genuinely kind of unhinged. He hijacked a press conference with the Finnish president, poor Finnish president, to rail against Adam Schiff and others. I'm going to let you um, finish. And he, and he, you know, he he spoke that the whistleblower should be possibly executed as a spy. He retweeted uh, this this conservative evangelical pastor who predicted uh, that Trump's uh, removal from office might tar- cause a civil war. Do you think that this is uh, is chaos still his friend, which is it? It has mm. been for the past three years. Is it still the case? Well, it depends whether you're talking about impeachment or re-election. Um, I think those polls are interesting. You now have, um, and again, polls will change, but that they are behaving differently than they have in the past when there have been these big moments. So, um, and but I think that you could have a possible, you could have a situation where, I mean, there are a couple of things that feel like possible dams are breaking. I spoke um, to a former administration official who anticipated that two things might happen. Some number of people who have other things they know about the administration or the president that they've been kind of keeping under wraps that are in the same possible category as the Ukraine as as Ukraine and the conversation the president had, even if they don't think it goes all the way to impeachment. It is the behavior, it is the disordered behavior of of a disordered White House. Um, and this disorder is manifesting itself in all kinds of different ways. There's this amazing uh, interview in the Washington Post with Acting Homeland Security Secretary McAleenan, in which he says he basically has no control over his agency because everything about an immigration is being run out of the White House. So that general feeling of chaos, people who feel, hey, I experienced or witnessed or otherwise was um, connected to a moment of chaos, they might start leaking about it, feeling just kind of either liberated or or kind of wanting to get it off their chest. There are also possibly people who've witnessed other things that happen who start talking, particularly if they've been subpoenaed. And so I think that cr- creates a different atmosphere here that might all have nothing to do, might add to the president's behavior and, and really affect the election, which is, okay, maybe not enough to impeach him, but, uh, but not worth ha- going through this for another four years. Um, and I guess I would add one more thing about this week we should talk about quickly. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was asked on this week by Martha Raddatz if he knew anything about the phone call. At that point, the summary of the phone call had been released. He was on the call, we learned this week. We we did not know that on Sunday. On Sunday, he he did not say what you would expect him to have said if he believed what the president has said, which is the president said this is a perfect phone call. If you watch the clip on this week, his answer was evasive. He didn't deny, uh, but he just totally changed the subject. He was quite, uh, it, it appeared uncomfortable to talk about it. The reason I think that's significant and interesting is, A, Pompeo has future political desires, and so that, it, that, that video clip is not going to look so great. But also, the president's argument is, nothing wrong with the phone call. Remember how focused I am on the phone call. The president's saying, perfectly fine phone call. But the Secretary of State, who was on the call, heard it firsthand, was given an opportunity to say exactly what the president said at a moment where it really would have helped in that news cycle, could have said, you know what, it was a perfect phone call. Didn't. And so what was that about? There might have been a, 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 you know, a reasonable explanation. I'm not sure what it is, but that, I think, is another moment here um, that was important in the last week. I mean, John, don't you think that one big question looming out there is whether we're going to see more defections because people are worried first of all, about their reputations, but also about their legal exposure. And it's possible that, you know, that there can be rats fleeing the sinking ship pretty soon. Although, on the other hand, if other big 
bombs of information don't drop, then I would imagine we uh, won't see I, that and people will start to feel reassured and they'll stick to I, Trump. I don't, I, we have seen so few rats fleeing the sinking ship when you think about how many scandals there have been during the course of this, this administration, how many things where you would think, oh, my reputation is dead if I don't cooperate. There really have been almost none. I mean, the only one you can even maybe nod at is, uh, what's his name, the White House counsel, um, who cooperated with Mueller, Don McGahn. Don McGahn, but even he hasn't even shown up to testify to Congress. Uh, I think th- there's an extraordinary True. shift. I think people are much less concerned about their reputation, or maybe they feel their reputation is tied up with a, a kind of conservative pro-Trump movement that they don't want to get on the wrong side of. And they'd rather, they, there, there isn't a kind of consensus opinion of the American people that they're worried about. They're worried about the opinion of their tribe. And their tribe is, does not want them to, to flip. Well, it depends who you're talking about. I, and we'll get to the question of tribe in the next topic. But I do think there is one interesting thing that um, a f- former intelligence official I was talking to mentioned, which is a lot of this stuff, the, the conversation with the Ukraine president and other conversations that might have been in the same disordered category, it's probably been picked up by foreign intelligence. And there are other countries that have things and transcripts and phone calls that might not look so great in this new context if released. And if you were an official who was either on those calls or knew about those calls or participated in the the seclusion of the, that information to keep it from leaking within the White House, uh, it might not look so wonderful. Um, and so there, this person was or was making the case that they that some of those people who know about other stuff that's out there, if such stuff is out there, um, might be inspired to talk for their own reputations to um, to kind of get ahead of of the story. Um, and 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 that would be people in the category of not political types so much, but um, you know, people in the foreign policy community who who worked in the administration but aren't, you know, aren't going and attending every Republican rally. Emily, one of the stories of this entire administration has been its, or since there's been a democratically controlled House, has been its resistance to any cooperation with Congress, uh, won't send officials to testify, claim executive privilege, national security excuses, will not turn over requested documents, will uh, not turn over tax returns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With impeachment, this is going to be go to 11. With these emerging legal conflicts, do you think they are going to resolve themselves neatly? Uh, if they don't resolve themselves neatly, what are the possible ways they could unfold? The only real stick the Democrats have is threatening to draw up an article of impeachment based on obstruction of justice if the subpoenas, the documents, etc. aren't complied with. And that's more than they had before. And I think as a result, you're going to see a little more turning over of information and making witnesses available to testify. I mean, we already saw that with the release of the call summary and the whistleblower complaint. But I don't think we're going to see a wholesale change. And what happens when the executive branch does not comply is the issues go to the courts to be litigated. And they have not been speedily litigated in the courts. Technically, Congress has the power um, to issue its own contempt citations. But that just seems to be like basically a dead letter that doesn't really move anything. So I think that we're going to see a lot more stonewalling, maybe not as complete, but certainly enough. There was a piece by Will Wilkinson in the New York Times. He's a Will is a, I would guess you would say, a moderate Republican of the sort that rarely exists anymore, arguing the president must be impeached and removed uh, and cannot be allowed to run for office again for this reason, which is that he is set out to distort and shape and ruin the election, to cheat the election. If he is allowed to run and win, if he is if he's impeached and not removed from office, and then is allowed to run and win, it, it means there's no integrity left in the system. It means we're willing to accept all forms of cheating and power politics and the misuse of the justice system, justice system uh, for personal political gains for the sake of, of power politics, for the, sake of, for the sake of personal triumph. What do you make of that, John? Do you think that, that well, I mean, it's obviously true, but do you think that, that that's going to play with any Republicans? Will any Republicans feel like, man, if this guy gets to stay in office after the ways in which he's distorted the the political process, 
uh, have come to light that we have sacrificed the possibility of having free elections and fair elections indefinitely. Well, I, it feels like this argument's going to sort and, and in a way that isn't um, necessarily conducive to new learning. Um, so, for example, I think you'd have... So the traditional Republican response, I think even from people who might be done with Trump, would say, uh, sure, the phone call with the president of Ukraine was not great, uh, but, you know, presidents try and use their office to get reelected all the time, and this is... Um, and he's disordered and 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 shouldn't be reelected for all these other problems. But that this isn't this isn't so much worse uh, than the other things he's done. That it that it tees up that 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 question. Um, uh, so I I mean it's an interesting argument. Um, but I don't I don't when when I read it and and as you repeated, I didn't feel like ah that's gonna that's gonna turn the. Um, the way when I first when when somebody months and months and months ago said, you know, the question with Donald Trump is, is do you really want four more years of this drama? That to me was a pretty clarifying um, argument. It may, if made in the public square, people who who might even not like liberals or Democrats would say, you know what, I don't know that I want four more years. So I didn't find this as clarifying as say that. Slate Plus members, you pay a little bit of money. And you get amazing bonus content from the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You get bonus segments on every episode. And today on our bonus segment, we're going to be talking about red meat, not red meat politics, but actual red meat. And the new study suggesting that eating meat is not bad for you, and it, and which has so many people upset and up in arms. Should you change your behavior based on that study? Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Continuing on the impeachment theme, the true mystery of the Trump era made manifest, made ever more manifest during this Ukraine scandal and the move to impeach is why Republicans stick with Trump. He has turned the party inside out. People who used to valorize personal morality above all and politicians have fully attach themselves to somebody who is an immoral fiend. Republicans who held certain foreign policy principles have absolutely abandoned them, who had certain principles about free trade have absolutely abandoned them, dispensed with concerns about budget deficits, ditched the federalism they used to cling to so dearly, welcomed kind of meddling and corruption that they never would have tolerated in a Democrat. They're utterly entwined with the president though they know at some level they probably shouldn't be for, for political reasons or for other reasons. And I think there are, have been different explanations hazarded. The number one explanation that's been hazarded is it's really in self-interest that, oh, we've gotten lower taxes or, oh, we've gotten a lot of justices confirmed that, that pursue conservative ends. But there is a new explanation out. And that new explanation has come from Pete Weiner, who's a conservative intellectual, but a not Trump-supporting one. And John, do you want to talk a little bit about what what his explanation is or what his theory is sure although i, I um yes just for the purpose of teeing that up um so basically he argues that there's a psycho psychological impulse that kicks in um that is essentially that um belonging to the tribe is more important than any of those other things and that um what happens is there's a kind of snowball effect which is that um Defending President Trump is kind of the first thing you do, and then defending your defense of President Trump ends up being the thing that, that is most uh, responsible for the adhesion, that that's the thing that keeps you, no matter what he does. Um, and this, uh, I remember very clearly with, uh, somebody explained to me with um, Paul Ryan, one of the times he chose to speak out, this was even during the campaign, I think, that that, that Ryan was essentially saying, you know, if I speak out against this, I'm going to have to, this is slightly different than 
Peter's point, but that 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 if I speak out on this, everybody's going to say, you, "What you didn't speak out about the other five things," um, and it just it, it, it the first time having heard that three years ago was it, it it suggested the kind of box he's talking about, but but it's more than just a box because the way he frames it is. Um, you not you you start to gain you start to sort of be delighted to defend the president and that you become i mean the way he describes it you become almost a different person because of this psychological adhesion um and tribal feeling that kicks in from from making defenses of the president is that roughly what is that right, roughly that, what he said right, that, yeah. yeah i think he said tribalism is a key word and you you form a sense of group identity of harmony and cohesion which replaces and that tribalism trumps the the sense of personal ethics, personal morality, personal political ideology that had guided you because in some ways you've made this accommodation with someone you know is immoral, someone you know is, is wretched, and the the way you get solace is the comfort of the group and the group protects you and defends you and welcomes you and, and, and then becomes immune to criticisms of its tactics, immune to to people's condemnation of them because that, that just further uh, reaffirms your separation from them. And it's, it's sort of terrifying, Emily, don't you think? Well, but it's also so natural, right? I mean, I feel like another key element of this is that you become more and more convinced and the group reinforces this, that the other side is worse. And so you see through the things through that lens, and there are plenty of media outlets and social media posts that can feed your sense of that. And I think a lot of people just totally distrust what they read in the or see in the media that doesn't fit into that framework. And so it's partly like you're, you know, trolling the other side. And it's partly that like, the ends justify the means like you think that your ends are better. And so you're willing to put up with a lot of this. And I think before Democrats get all like haughty, we should remember that we tolerated and put up with and defended a lot of Clinton shenanigans that did not seem to be consonant with our personal ethics. I'm not even talking about myself specifically because I wasn't doing any, I wasn't a journalist at the time, but it, you know, like there is, it, there's a lot of incentive to disregard wrongdoing by someone you think is on your team. Right. And I think that's the that's the intellectually honest way to approach this. Um, and it's why this question is so interesting because we're all susceptible at one level or another to uh, motivated reasoning and to throwing over things that were that were deeply held before. Um, there is a strong feeling. I uh, mentioned something on Twitter because I was thinking about this in connection with my book, a version along the lines of what what David uh, said in the introduction to this, which is if you look at both on a policy and cultural stand from policy and cultural standpoint, the the Republican Party that spent years talking about deficit reduction now doesn't talk about it at all. Trade, immigration, the the. The GOP autopsy after the 2012 campaign had one policy recommendation, support for comprehensive immigration. That's 180 degrees opposite to what the party's policy is now. On questions of morality and truth-telling, Republican voters, when polled, uh, there's a 20-point difference between what they believed in before Trump and after. It's okay now for a lot of people to not tell the truth. It's okay now to have a lower moral standard. That's a big switch in a short period of time. The response from liberals was, you fool, they were always like this. Therefore, there's nothing to see here. It's just the, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's uh, either the case or what's interesting about the human behavior here. And so I think, Emily, what you, uh, what you put your finger on is right. And the question, I think for me, the reason where this comes is that this is actually familiar. The whole way, uh, the whole reason the constitution was set up is because the framers knew that human beings were susceptible to this kind of behavior, that particularly when power was on the line, demagogues and the tools of demagoguery would be successful or they knew that just wanting to stay in power would be successful and you would forgive, uh, and as you, Bill Clinton's a good example, you would forgive the transgressions on the very things you said you cared about because you had somebody in there who in other ways was doing things you cared about. They knew all that would happen, so they put all these protections in place. Those protections have dropped and the, the norms uh, that used to uh, cause people to say, wait a minute, you can't do that, are all basically mostly gone. There's an interesting distinction, I think, between the 
political leaders of the party or the, the elected officials and the rank and file, particularly as senators. I think it's probably the case that a lot of the senators, particularly ones who had to deal one-on-one with Trump in some way, recognize that Trump is a malignant narcissist. And they recognize also, because they've been around politics for a long time and they've seen what you know, what proper political behavior is and, and what the guardrails of Washington are, that what he's done has been destructive and counter to the interests of, of a well-run government. But they are not going to break with him because, not because they, they themselves have been caught up in the tribalism, although some of them have, but also because they just don't want to, uh, they don't want to commit suicide in their party. They know their rank and file has been caught up in this tribalism, even if they themselves have not personally uh, fallen as deeply into it. Um, there is one uh, one other point or one other question I have about this, which is if this is the case that you have a this tribalist attitude about Trump, how do Democrats and moderates try to peel people away from that? What is the mechanism? I think it's because there, there are so many things reinforcing it. Fox is reinforcing it. The president himself reinforces it. The Every attack by Democrats somehow reinforces that tribalist instinct. What are the ways in which it can be minimized, in which you can find some commonalities and start to at least get people to at least start to doubt or to lower their own temperature? What do you think, Emily? I feel really pessimistic about this. I'm sorry to say that, but I, last week I was hanging out with some people who seem like Republican voters. They didn't tell me that, but like that seemed to be the case. And they wanted to tell me how they have utterly lost faith in the media. They can't find anything to listen or watch that seems reliable to them. They dismiss the New York Times in the same breath as any other news outlet, et cetera, et cetera. That makes me feel kind of hopeless because it means that we don't have a lot of way back to a shared set of facts. And that kind of... uh, disreliability, like making information not reliable anymore is, you know, like that's what it's like to live in Russia. You have no idea what's government propaganda and what's not. And if we start inflicting that on ourselves, I'm not sure how you peel yourself off from a set of attachments that are themselves supported by disinformation campaigns. Right. You have to, right. You have to create a common narrative and commonalities and people it's so hard for people to find them as they segregate. They segregate in their news consumption. They segregate in how where they live. They segregate in their religious practice. They segregate in how they work, where their kids go to school. And so it is until you have points of commonality where you can find something which you do share. It doesn't have to be what you share. doesn't have to be a point about President Trump. It may just be you support the same football team and, and cheer in the same way. That it, but, until, but there are fewer and fewer of those points of commonality. And it it does make it seem very very difficult to create any any uh, break in the tribal division. John, you were going to say something. And even when you find the points of commonality, right? Like they can be personal and warm and full of love and friendship, but they may not change your mind about a single thing in politics. Well, I I think the I I think nothing's going to change. For a little, well, it depends where what we really mean about change here, because um, I think it's the, the adhesion is kind of there are a couple of things. There's one, this psychological. Um, I mean, all the tricks used to gain power in election are to create this kind of tribal feeling, um, to uh, sort of demagogue the other, um, and usually there's a wall between what you do in campaigns and what you do as governing. That wall has disappeared. Um, somebody could reassert that wall. That's that's one thing. Um, but I think the 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 problem here is that there's the the psychological um, uh, rallying that happens in in both parties and that's happening strongly among supporters uh, of the president. But I think there is that policy side, which is for people who and this is why the president and his defenders have quite a rejoinder to the Jeff Flakes and Mitt Romney and all the rest, because yeah, they say, they say, you know, critical things of the president, but then they either vote with him or support everything he does. And the argument is basically, look, on the most important things, he's doing the right stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I'd rather have somebody in there doing the right stuff on judges and regulations 
than um, Elizabeth Warren. So it's both what he's achieved and the threat that Emily mentioned earlier of the other. Um, And we know from polling that both parties have a number of people. It's almost now to a majority. I think it's a plurality that think the other party is not just wrong, but an active threat to America. So if you add doing the right things on the stuff you care about, plus the fact that the nominee of the other party will be an active threat to America, I don't think you have to be psychologically, um, you know, uh, overwrought to sort of say, okay, well, my team is, you know, it ain't great, but it's better than the alternative. Um, and so I think until you get, uh, I, I think all those things will allow people to kind of st- stay where they are until you have a big breaking moment. Um, and that'll either be something that, you know, maybe Ukraine grows into that, maybe not, or it just becomes an election um, and maybe nobody has a great revelation, but people decide, ah, eh, I'm just not going to turn out. And the breaking moment ends up just being the other team does turn out. Um, so, the, no, go ahead. Let me, let me close this with an alternative theory or maybe an additive theory. So in addition to the Wayner vision, there's also a theory from a couple of, I think, political scientists, Levitsky and Lindblatt. Oh, I didn't write down their first names. And that is a much more a, a theory about political power. Why is it that there has been this extreme tribalist instinct and why is it that the republican party has become basically a white christian party party of white christian identity and the theory that they lay out is actually it's it's just a simple matter of power and numbers that the white christian uh majority in the republican party the which is the the massive majority in the republican party is terrified of losing power and losing and the consequences of losing power. They recognize there's been an extreme demographic shift in the con- country. And as a result, they are, and they're trying to hold on. They don't want to lose the election because they're worried, they lose elections because they're worried about what those consequences will be. And they see really dire consequences. And part of that's a, from a heightened, uh, anxious worldview that has been fomented in part by Fox and, and, and by, by Trump. And, but they are willing to engage in any kind of dirtiness in politics to preserve that bunker polit- that bunker identity, including basically delegitimating the system. If you look at a state like North Carolina, where they tried to strip power from the elected governor or try to the level of gerrymandering, the the efforts to just restrict voting by people of, of color, restrict voting by uh, ex-felons, uh, every, every piece of the the armature used to discourage voting, discourage political participation from non-white people is part of this, this, uh, this white Christian identity attempting to hold on to its power. Emily, did that move you? My, or my gloss on that move you? Well, it worries me because then you start thinking that, I mean, when was the last time a group that self-identified strongly as a group versus other groups and had hegemony gave up its power without like a huge amount of, you know, effectively like revolutionary effort? I mean, you know, think about like the white South Africans and what it took to dismantle apartheid. If we really are divided by race and religion, ethnicity to this degree, and, you know, the white people you're talking about see their power as declining and as doing so at the expense of people of color. Like, I don't see how they go quietly into the night. And the only way to think about changing that is to enlarge the definition of what it means to be like part of the group. Right. And so you want some larger notion of American belonging. And I think we've had that at certain times in history, or at least we've had the illusion of that. And right now, that light feels very dim. Well, the only thing is that the demographically, uh, they are not on the on the side of um, trends. They're going to lose, yeah. right? right. But, but, the, but, like, but they've distorted right? the political but system, so it didn't takes? matter. Well, it doesn't we'll matter. We'll see. Um, the yeah, I mean, we'll see. It, it, their efforts may not be strong enough, and they also may not, in the end, like care to disenfranchise enough people to make it work. But right now, it feels like a threat. The the trends that the Republican Party was consumed with just three short years ago, or maybe four now, uh, continue apace, and uh, and and they are losing some of their own voters. 
and that's why partially part of what you see in the strategy from the Trump campaign, both in the last election and this one, is 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 not just to maximize their base, but to also diminish the size of the other one. Right. Not just through specifically um, even anything in ballot access or any of that, but just to just kind of bum out voters um, so that they don't turn out. That's not a strategy built from strength. That's a strategy built on, you know, on a tough hand and just trying to ruin the hand of the other person. Um, but so implicit in that strategy is a, is a, is a weakness that's, um, that can't just be solved. I mean, unless you like start putting tanks in the streets. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. A, I mean, we've had other periods of this in American history, right? That's like, a, that's a terrifying, there could be tanks in the streets. Well, or go back to the 1920s where, you know, the white, mostly rural residents who were threatened by the census count because it revealed many more immigrants in urban areas just like didn't redistrict for nine years and passed uh, immigration restrictions to slow down um, the changing demographics. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it and I guess you could say like, OK, and then the country rolled on. I'm never quite sure when I um, start thinking about the low points, which conclusion to draw. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right. A big affirmative action ruling from a district court judge. It upheld Harvard's admission practices as related to Asian Americans. There's a claim from a conservative legal group led by a man named Ed Blum, or maybe it's Ed Bloom, I'm not sure, that Harvard was discriminating against Asian American applicants in uh letting in certain kinds of less qualified African-American, Hispanic, and white applicants, and therefore Harvard Harvard's admission practices need to be radically changed and shifted. There, this case will be appealed up to an appeals court, a federal appeals court, and then will end up at the Supreme Court. But it was seen, the district court ruling was seen by supporters of university admissions affirmative action as being a pretty big win. Emily, tell us a little bit about the case, where it came from, and why it is seen as important. Well, this case, like you said, came from Edward Bloom, who's tried to litigate other affirmative action uh, claims, or I should say anti-claims, on behalf of white students. And this time, he found Asian American students to sue Harvard. And so that's a better face for this effort, better to have some people of color on your side the testimony at trial like revealed the sausage making of the Harvard's admission process, and it didn't always look great because college admissions at selective institutions are not fair. They're just not. Like there are many, many more people who would thrive at Harvard and Yale and all these other places than there are spots for them. And so somewhat arbitrary decisions get made about who gets in and who doesn't. And then there was a lot of letting in of legacies and athletes and kids from families who donate money to the school. Fully 43% of the white students at Harvard fit into one of those categories. To me, that's like the headline. But yes. if you want admissions to be more fair, maybe that is the place to focus instead of the far, far, far smaller number of black and Latinx students. But that's not what opponents of affirmative action care about. And so we had this suit and the judge's ruling was, you know, necessary for maintaining any race-based affirmative action anywhere. 
The reason I say that is that Harvard has all the money in the world to throw at admissions. And so it doesn't have quotas, which the Supreme Court outlawed in the 70s. It has this very careful individual review. And whatever factors it's using and the way in which it takes race into account, if Harvard can't do what it's doing, then basically I think no college would feel like they could continue. And of course, the big question is, what is the Supreme Court going to do when it gets this case? You know, maybe a year from now, maybe a little longer. And the problem, I think, for proponents of affirmative action is that there were enough unattractive facts coming out from Harvard that if a conservative majority of judges, justices wants to end affirmative action, like they can do it. What do you mean by unattractive facts? Well, from the point of view of of some Asian American students who didn't get in, they, on average as a group, had lower, like, personality, personal ratings, these kind of ineffable characteristics that make it look like there's this stereotype of an Asian American as being a less exciting student to admit overall. And, like, that's bad. I mean, that's, like, pretty inexcusable, honestly, and super unfair, The problem is what I said before, like there is no real fair way to do this. I mean, the notion that because you got an 800 or whatever the number is now on your SAT and you had perfect grades, you deserve to get in more. Like, I just don't believe it. I don't believe it based on what I see from my law students at Yale. Like they come from a range of backgrounds. They bring different things to the school. We could all be replaced in a heartbeat by other people. Maybe we should have a lottery at this point or these schools should expand the size of their classes vastly as uh, my friend Daniel Markovitz, who's going to be on the show Mm. soon, argues. But, like, it just, there, we are kind of searching for some holy grail of, like, fairness and admissions here, and it just doesn't exist. Right. I mean, I'm just going to make the point, which, Emily, you nodded at a minute ago, and which we've talked about before on the show. The way in which athletic preference gets used is just so appalling. Having spent some time watching the, the Northeast elite college admissions process through my daughter, and thinking about it for my other kids, it's grotesque. The way in which athletics has become this this uh, affirmative action for for white kids, essentially, it's an affirmative action for white kids who's white well off white well off kids who's who've been whose parents have invested in them doing learning how to be good at some particular sport and spending a bunch of time on the sport. It's fine to spend a bunch of time on the sport. It's good. Teamwork is great. Nothing wrong with it, but the overvaluation of that relative to so many other things is disgusting. And I don't think – I think it's it's sort of unrealistic to get rid of legacy preferences. It's just too hard emotionally. It's too important for school's identity and for, for donations. I don't think the same thing is true for athletics. I think schools could step back from athletics and it would be okay. They just They just need to – need to have several of them do it at the same time and step it's, back what really, does that mean means it means don't don't uh don't give so many preferences to athletes who come in who are going to make your fencing team a little bit better or your crew team a little bit better don't spend so much of your endowment and so much of your capital campaign on building new athletic facilities don't emphasize in all your fundraising in your uh, outreach the athletics as the key central pillar of what you're doing. Uh, don't reserve so many spots. Just don't reserve so many spots in your class. And instead, say we're not going to be a great, you know, the best school for for mediocre uh, Division three football. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the best school for chemistry, and we're going to bring in a couple of chemistry Nobel laureates to be professors. That's what we're going to spend on, and we're going to we're going to have this reputation as like. But having the best undergraduate chemistry department of any college in the country, and that seems to me so much be so much better if they were doing that. And but but they're cowardly. Can I add two things? The first is that I don't think we should give up on eliminating or reducing legacy admissions. The second thing is that what these colleges are really falling down on is admitting low-income students. And we talked about this with Paul Toff a couple of weeks ago. It's like. Uh, that is a Shonda. It is a just shameful fact of university existence. And if universities increase the number of poor students, they could admit more white poor students in along with low income students of color. And that could help address these issues of fairness in a way that 
you know, would resonate with more white Americans and make them feel like these institutions were a potential part of their lives. I mean, I also think, yes, obviously, it's hugely important to support public universities and widen the lens. But as long as we're going to have this, you know, elitist meritocracy based on selective schools, it needs to be more widely available to people across the socioeconomic spectrum. All right. Last question on this, Emily. Why would Ed Bloom bring a case like this with a private university? And why why isn't the main attack to take down affirmative action at public universities first? I would have thought there would be a much easier path. Is the Supreme Court really going to say, yeah, I know there's always with universities, they're, they're always getting federal funds. And so that's always your backdoor to make anything a federal case in federal business. But Harvard is effectively a private organization uh, in a way that a public university is not effectively a private organization. Is, is the Supreme Court really going to meddle that deeply in the policies of a private organization? Well, Bloom's previous case that went to the Supreme Court was at University of Texas, Austin. So that was a public university route. There is a parallel lawsuit that I believe he's funding at the University of North Carolina, another public school. And I think the Harvard and UNC efforts are kind of happening in tandem. And I don't know exactly why the Harvard trial happened first, but I think there's basically coordinated effort to go after both public and private universities. You know, yes, Harvard does receive federal funding. That is the backdoor way in. And I think also from the point of view of like optics, I mean, for the Supreme Court, just imagine the opinion that Justice Alito or someone is going to write. Like, Harvard, this place dripping in money is not being fair and not letting in low income kids because it's not. Instead, like it's putting a thumb on the scale in a way that hurts Asian Americans. Like that's going to make that's a great way to own the libs. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having your pumpkin cocktail. Like every time I go to a bar, there seems to be some grotesque looking pumpkin or pecan pie cocktail on the menu. <laughs> Ugh, yuck. But when you're having that, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? You know, the thing about pumpkin, it, what happens when like suddenly, whether it's pumpkin or kale or cauliflower, like they're just quietly these vegetables or, or I guess fruits. And then suddenly they're everywhere. Um, anyway, the story of big pumpkin should be, um, uh, told, but it's not my chatter. My chatter is the about... The Great some... Pumpkin, Charlie Barron. It's yeah. the Great Pumpkin. That was the story of Big Pumpkin. My chatter is about America in One Room, which I chattered about uh, some number of weeks ago, and this was this effort to address what we were talking about earlier, and I had to bite my tongue not to raise it, which is that there is actually a huge, you know, uh, that America's polarization is real, it's virulent, but it's mostly because uh, the political process has been captivated or has been controlled and continues to be controlled and the polarization makes it worse by people who are at both ends and who are maximally online and uh you know exact um maximum price for participation in politics but american one room took 523 registered voters from around the country flew them all to dallas to a to a resort and basically did um an experiment about what they believed about what things the, the labels were stripped away, um, and it found, um, and it was done with the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford and the um, National Opinion uh, Research Center at Chicago. So this is, um, you know, the best of political science trying to f- put people in a room who are representative of the country. And they studied. A, there was a, they were given a fifty-five page handbook that was prepared by policy experts, and they basically you know, did what you expected, which is that they had notions based on their personal experience that were well-informed, but not didn't fit necessarily into the political scripts that we all have. People, when they met each other, um, even if they had different views, they changed their opinions. They behaved basically like human beings. And um, Emily Badger and Kevin Queeley um, wrote a piece for The Upshot about this. And they also took pictures of all the participants, um, which makes for a very appealing um, article in addition to the way it's written. Now, of course, the big question is how you connect this experiment or and and what it says with the way we actually do participate in politics, and that's a much bigger challenge. But there is, uh, it, it's worth reading and looking at these opinions and ideas and people um, because they represent a, another large part of America that isn't really a part of the conversation in the way we normally have it. Emily, what is your 
pumpkin spice chatter. And I think you have a special announcement, pumpkin spicy chattery announcement. I do. My special announcement comes from someone who emailed us about an upcoming wedding. The people who are getting married had online profiles that each mentioned the GabFest, and that's how they met. Their names are Colleen Laurie and Rudolph Boulanger, and we were tickled by this. So we wish you the most lovely wedding and a great life. And now, on a very different note, my chatter is about reporting that ProPublica has been doing on audits at the IRS. This is like exhibit 380 million in why it is expensive and rotten to be poor in America. The IRS is auditing the working poor at about the same rate as the wealthiest 1%. ProPublica reports that in a letter this week, the IRS commissioner said the reason they're doing this is that it's just a lot cheaper to audit low-income people. You can use low-level staffers. Their tax returns aren't complicated. Just easier to go check them. And so these huge piles of wealth and undoubtedly lots of tax avoidance is going uninvestigated because people have in Congress, especially Republicans, have been cutting the budget of the IRS. And meanwhile, the working poor are having the tax collectors drive them crazy. I mean, this is just it just makes no sense. And it is so frustrating to hear about. My chatter. I actually have a little thank you before my chatter, which is there was a wonderful uh, review in Vulture of the 10 most important political podcasts of all time. And I'm so pleased to say that we were, I don't know if we were top of the list, we were the first one written about. And it was such a lovely piece about who we are and what we do, uh, a description of who we are and what we do. I'm just going to read a little bit. It's by Leon Nafak, who used to actually podcast for Slate. And Leon wrote that that we, the three of us, have a sibling-like rapport, interrupting, laughing, and teasing, sometimes quite brutally. They are experts, but one whose intimacy and affection for one another permits a kind of genuine intellectual candor. They are funny, informed, and sometimes thrillingly mean. Their thinking is collaborative. They change each other's minds. Listening to them is like witnessing an essay being written in real time by a writer trying to untangle an idea with their smartest friends. That was such a nice thing to read it's like being seen it's like <laughs> it's, all of a sudden we were seen well it's either that it's like better than being seen it's like the best mirror ever with the greatest light i know but but as a sign of my psycho psychological deficits it made me when i read it i thought oh i'd really like to be that person <laughs> as opposed to it being a mirror <laughs> all right my actual chatter is about an amazing solicitation that the Republican National Committee sent out in Montana to raise money for Trump's reelection. And they sent out forms to potential donors that were labeled 2019 Congressional District Census. And they look exactly like, not exactly like, extremely similar to actual census forms. They look like an official census form. But it's a it's then asked a series of questions that's designed to make you feel good about Republicans and bad about Democrats and then to prompt you to give money. But it has this quality of officialness and senselessness and deceptiveness that's grotesque. And it's actually probably or potentially a federal crime. It is a federal crime to pretend to be the census. And here we have the very party that the president represents doing it and using his name to help him with his presidential reelection. So it's another example of, of the taking of the official government arm and somehow misusing it, dragooning it in order to help the president's personal political ends. It's pretty gross. Uh, I'm sure the FEC will be on it. Oh, wait, the FEC has no quorum and is totally and completely dysfunctional. Yeah, definitely. They'll be on it. Right. Exactly. Well said. We also get listener chatter every week. So many great listener chatters this week. So, so many great ones. And I'm just going to call out to you, Angela, at Oreo Tookie. Angela sent us a truly depressing story from AL.com, an Alabama news site, about a practice which is apparently quite common in Alabama and also exists in other states, where Alabama sheriffs have in, in their custody, in jail, somebody who is sick, someone who has a sudden, quite uh, serious illness, something maybe even fatal, and so while they're transporting this person to the hospital for treatment, they release them from jail. They release the inmates from jail, have the inmates sign a release form. 
So the inmate gets to the hospital, is no longer in custody, and therefore the, the jail and the state is no longer responsible for any of their care. And the patient themselves becomes responsible for all the bills. And then once this health crisis has passed, these people are often rearrested. It's just vile. It's just vile and wrong, and we should be ashamed. So thank you, at Oreo Tookie, for pointing out that depressing piece to us. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Melissa Kaplan helped out here in D.C. Who helped out in New York, John? Is it Alan Pang? Oh, that's Alan our Pang good on the friend, board? Alan Pang. He's always at his post. Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategapfest. Tweet your chatter to us. And please, if you're in the East Bay, the West Bay, the South Bay, the North Bay, Bay City, please come to our December 18th show in Oakland at the Fox Theater, our annual conundrum show. Go to slate.com slash live starting Friday morning for tickets for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? You may have seen there was a study. There was five reviews published in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week by a bunch of scientists looking at looking at studies about red meat. And they came to the conclusion that there is no health reason that they were able to discern not to eat red meat. That when you dig into the data, when you look at when you sort of disaggregate the kinds of people who eat meat from the kinds of people who don't eat meat and sort of take away the the distinction there, there does not seem to be intrinsically in red meat something which is health damaging to the health. Or or at least we don't there's not enough evidence to conclude that people should not eat red meat for health reasons. And that got a lot of people up in arms. Why did it get people up in arms, Emily? I don't know. Why did it get people up in arms? I wasn't up in arms. I just oh, find I... these like dietary recommendations like they they're like yo-yos and I basically just don't really listen to any of them and I'm not going to like start red, eating red meat because of this. Plus red meat is terrible for carbon footprint, well, etc. That's why people got up in that's arms. That's what got people up in arms. Yeah, because yeah, they... No, John, take it away. Well, yeah, no, but people... But wait, if you think the science is solid, like you're not supposed to not report on this health finding because <laughs> of the carbon oh, footprint. You, that doesn't make you're sense. You're not on Twitter enough, are you? <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> yes. You've said two things that would get you on Twitter that would literally melt your phone. You mentioned Bill Clinton having done anything wrong in the context. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.